The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast coming to you from the great Commonwealth of Virginia in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from our friends in Washington, D.C., our friends over in the federal government who it looks like they're going to be in quarantine a little longer than than we are out here in, in Virginia, but that's okay because we're all working uh, no matter where we're at. And today we have a great episode with a good friend, a former client, uh, Mr. Roberto Vendania, who is out in College Station, Texas. He is a Nicaraguan American. He has uh, paid a very high price uh, for the cause of freedom. He uh, was persecuted by the Nicaraguan uh, regime, and we're going to get into a little bit about that and also try to understand why is Nicaragua so important, uh, because it is from a security standpoint, from a U.S. standpoint. Uh, why do our friends in Nicaragua still struggle in 2018? Hundreds, potentially thousands of, of Nicaraguans paid a very high price, including a few Americans that were killed uh, because of uh, acts done by the Ortega Murillo regime. There's still a lot of political prisoners. Uh, we have a lot of friends out there, lawyers who are on the front lines, uh, trying to, as best they can, defend rule of law. You know, there is no rule of law in Nicaragua. So we're going to get into a lot of that and maybe share some tips about what you can do to help the folks in Nicaragua, because what happened in Nicaragua impacts us here. Roberto, how are you doing? How's everything out in College Station? Thank you very much, Jason, uh, for having me in your program. Uh, thank God that we're uh, doing good health-wise here in Texas, here in College Station. Um, College Station, uh, part of the Brazos County, is a rural part of Texas, and uh, yeah, the situation in Texas hasn't been so bad. So uh, cool, we, yeah. are, we are here in a sheltering place. Uh, but uh, just this uh, past weekend, we started getting back uh, into uh, usual normal life. So some of the community centers and areas are starting to open with obviously all the required precautions. You know, it's funny you mentioned you're in a rural area. It's not funny. It's just ironic because you, you have an interesting background. You, you, you come from a growing background, an agriculture background. I mean, your, your family, in fact, your dad, who was an American from Texas, I believe, he, had a, he started a coffee business in, in Nicaragua many, many, many years ago. Can you share briefly with our listeners a little bit about that? Because you have a great connection uh, to the U.S. that goes back um, generation. Yeah, I'm and I laugh because uh, I, I still feel awkward saying I'm in a rural area because obviously here it's uh, for me, you know, for, for, for what I'm used to, it's a booming city with uh, more than 70,000 students, you know, that house Texas A&M University and Blinn College. Uh, so when I'm saying from what I'm used to and the rural background that you referred to, yeah, it's mountainous areas in Central America where you need to travel. Uh, sometimes more than a couple of hours to get to, to the nearest town, you know, where, where we're still obviously very rural. Uh, kids having to walk for a couple of hours uh, sometimes, you know, to, to even go to school. Uh, so, yeah, here it's uh, much different. But, uh, yeah, fortunately, you know, we're all learning from this great experience. Uh, and, you know, that's... And, yeah. That's a great story. I mean, it's almost like you've lived uh, the American dream two or three times, and and you have a. Uh, I wish uh, someday some of our friends who are listening get to know Roberto and what and what he's done and his family have done in Nicaragua and, and here in the states. It's quite remarkable. It's uh, part of the American experience, and there's a, a great Nicaraguan American community in places like Miami, Texas, and other states that 
uh, have a great story to tell. And, you know, Roberto had an interesting one where he went back to Nicaragua to help his people out, uh, his ancestors, his friends, his families, uh, the people who, who were struggling under the Ortega Murillo regime. And briefly, Roberto, I mean, what happened? I mean, what? because they came after you. I mean, these people were not messing around. You know, when John Bolton calls on the axis of terror, which he did back in November 2018, uh, that was no exaggeration. I mean, friends, you know, Nicaragua has, uh, you know, their allies are people like Russia, Iran, uh, Cuba's Castro, Venezuela, uh, not the nicest people out there. But you went down there and tried to do something pretty simple. What did they do to you and why did they come after you the way they did back in 2014, 2013? Yeah, well, uh, like you said, first I lived the exile of the 80s because the communist government deported my father in 1981 for being a, a U.S. citizen. Uh, in fact, obviously, they, they, they claim, you know, that my father was a CIA agent, but all he was was a coffee grower defending the rights uh, uh, for, for, to have a private sector, to have private property. Uh, so I did do my high school uh, in Florida first, then here in Texas, and I continued my education here in Texas a and University. And... Here at the university, we were taught not to cheat, lie, or steal, or tolerate anybody uh, who does. So going back to Nicaragua, uh, you know, our, our dream, my dream was to, to teach uh, and to share uh, those, the things that I've learned here and to be able to build a true democracy. Uh, so I was involved in coffee first, and after a successful career, I thought it was my time to give back to the community. So I was vice president of uh, AMCHAM, the American Nicaraguan Chamber of Commerce, but also chairman of uh, Agamos Democracia, which is Growing Democracy, an advocacy group to, to promote citizens' participation. Um, we, at the time, tried to be local electoral observers. Uh, that was in 2011. And obviously, the uh, Superior Electoral Council, which was controlled by the dictatorial regime, uh, did not allow us. All, all they allow was uh, observers from their own uh, part, you know, from their own group, uh, leftist group, uh, but more uh, inclined to a dictatorial regime that they are. Um, so we started denouncing. We had the support of the European Union. Uh, because they were uh, part uh, uh, as international observers. Uh, but uh, we denounced all the irregularities during the process, and then obviously the fraudulent elections. Uh, first, uh, that Daniel Ortega uh, re-elected. I mean, he, the Constitution had that he could not run again uh, because he had already served two terms, but also because there is not immediate re-election or the Constitution had that was not uh, immediate re-election. But what is worse, Jason, is not only that he was re-elected as president, but that the Sandinista, the FSLN party, uh, went from having 40% to 60, 68% of the Congress, of the National Assembly. And wow. that's, that's due to the, the electoral fraud. Uh, and uh, they needed that in order to control uh, totally uh, the Congress in order to reform uh, the Constitution uh, to the presidential uh, needs. No. So uh, I, mean, I, I remember were over... that back then you were you were saying, sorry to interrupt you, but I just, this is such an important fact for listeners to 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 know you. You. You weren't asking for anything revolutionary. I mean, you were asking basically, hey, let's clean up the voter rolls and, and let's have everybody registered to vote. And if they had done something like that, you really, I mean, you even had a hunger strike. You and a bunch of college kids and, and folks out there uh, were on the front lines of this thing. And why did they refuse? I mean, what was going on with the voter, with the, with the voter system down there that they were so worried about registering people to vote? Yeah, well, exactly. In 2011, after the fraudulent elections, after we denounced, we came here to the U.S. Uh, I remember speaking to Mario Diaz-Balart uh, in Congress and to the other uh, representatives. Uh, 
it was time after that, you know, to to change uh, the the magistrates or the electoral council. Uh, but the president, by decree, decided that they were going to continue, even though the constitution had that they wow. needed to change. Uh, so there were some kids uh, doing a hunger strike in, across the street in front of the electoral council. So I decided to join them for for five days out there in in, in, in the in the streets. Uh, and un- unfortunately, uh, I mean, we did caught a lot of attention and sympathy uh, from the public opinion, but with a with a dictatorial regime, they, they didn't care, they didn't listen, they didn't pay any type, type of attention. Uh, but like you said, I mean, we were not asking for anything but the respect of human rights and to have uh, competitive elections. Uh, and in fact, in, in some of the so-called democratic uh, parties, uh, to be able to have primaries which, which here is natural. Uh, over there, unfortunately, uh, some of the caudillos, some of the strong leaders, they, they, they believe, you know, they own the party. Uh, so it's a basic uh, processes, democratic uh, citizen participation that, that we're used to here in the U.S. that need to happen. And sometimes we uh, take it for granted and we think, that, that the rest of the world is like the U.S., but unfortunately it's not. Well, you know, the, one of the remarkable things, I mean, when, I'm going to put information on the website that folks can go to learn about Roberto's case, so we're not going to uh, talk too much more about that. But one of the remarkable things, Roberto, is how hard they came after you. In fact, your case reminded me of what they did to uh, Bill Browder and his lawyer out in, in Russia, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, who paid a very high price for trying to expose corruption. And they weaponized and they still weaponize Interpol. And the, these, these regimes will turn on anybody, especially if you're American and they want to make a point and scare you and intimidate you. They'll, they'll falsely accuse you of crime. There is no rule of law in Nicaragua. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about that. It's a, it's a really sad situation where you don't have independent judges. They're there at the, at the whim of the regime and they paper accusations against people and they did it to you. It's an injustice. Uh, you, you know, you are going to have uh, your name cleared one day because I know that the free people of Nicaragua are not going to stand for this sort of thing. And, and interesting, Roberto, you, you were mentioning about the people on Nicaragua size and what have you, you know, it's, it's a country of about 6 million people, roughly about the size of Maryland or maybe even Missouri. So you would think that they can manage a voter role. It's not a very complicated thing to do, but, in, sometimes in these places, as you know, uh, it's not just the people in the government. It's people, even some people in the private sector are private actors who, who let these things happen. And in what happened in 2018, we're going to fast forward to a few things. We hear a lot here in Washington about, you know, the private sector and, and the government. And what is that discussion? Why do people who talk about Nicaragua sometimes say that, well, we got to go after the private sector or certain people in the private sector, because, you know, we're, we're free market people like you and I both are, you know, we're, we're very free market folks, rule of law, property rights, that sort of thing. Aren't free, aren't private actors a good thing? Well, yes. Uh, and, and let me rewind just in, in a couple of minutes uh, before 2018 to 2008, 10 years before. Uh, because the municipal elections uh, took place, uh, and that was even before 2011, where I was saying that Ortega was reelected. Uh, uh, but in 2008, uh, like you say, I mean, the registration uh, was, was in order. Even USAID, uh, with American dollars, uh, they, they, were, uh, they helped the Electoral Council to have uh, an automized, a computerized, uh, automated uh, reporting system uh, from each uh, uh, voting center. And in fact, that's how I, with some friends, discovered that first electoral fraud. Uh, But what they did is they started reporting only the, the ballots and the results where they were winning. And they were hitting or throwing away uh, the, the results where they were losing. So it was a totally manipulated uh, outcome. And they wow. were able to, to steal more than 
of the municipalities. So again, it's not that the law is wrong or back then at least where it has not been reformed yet, but it was just manipulated by the authoritative rule and control that they have, not only in the electoral, in the assembly, in the executive power, but the judicial power who, who said that the constitution was uh, violating Daniel Ortega's human rights to be able to be elected. Uh, so well, now, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna we're, we're gonna take a quick break, Roberto. I'm, I'm running okay. out of uh, up, up up against a hard stop. My producers will tell me I've gone over. So we're gonna take a quick stop. We'll pick up where we left off there because it's a very important fact. People need to know about this. We'll talk a little bit more about the private sector, what that all means, and then we'll jump into some of the more recent action items that a group you're working with, Justice and Democracy and Initiative for Change is taking. So we'll be right back. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. And welcome back. So, Roberto, before we took a break, you were chatting a little bit about the 2008 elections and how they robbed it uh, eventually using, quote unquote, the law. And um, what happened where you think, where was that breakdown, you think, where people here, you know, we, we, we believe in, you and I do, and other free-minded Americans believe in the power of markets and having uh, people... Uh, following their dreams and their initiatives and the government gets out of the way and lets them do what they want to do. What happened in Nicaragua, you think, during all this time that there are some people in Nicaragua who say the private sector has become a problem or facilitator, and there's another camp who says they, are, they may have been, but they're the best vehicle we have to move forward and change. Uh, I believe the change comes from the people, from the bottom up, uh, from people like Medardo and some others and some great leaders that you work with to try and advance democracy and rule of law. But you hear in Washington, though, a lot of folks ask about this private sector. What, what is it? So someone who knows nothing about Nicaragua and Nicaraguan politics, what does that mean? And why is it important? Well, it, it is very uh, complicated. Uh, but uh, obviously, I'm, I'm going to try to simplify it uh, because we don't have much time. But um, if you remember in the 2011, uh, the U.S. was having a real estate uh, crisis. You know, where, where all the prices of, of real estate of properties just just crashed, uh, went went down to to the floor. Uh, so it was uh, uh, the socialists, los uh, socialistas del siglo XXI, the socialists of, of, of the 21st century, the uh, way uh, that they call themselves. You know, now we know they're nar narco traffickers. You know. Uh, drug, drug traffickers, uh, they, they were criticizing, criticizing and saying that the capitalist uh, uh, model was not working. And uh, with all the petrodollars, and back at that moment, at that same time, the, the, the price of petrol was, I think, $150, was very high. So Chavez, with all his money, uh, was able to finance Nicaragua, uh, and not through the National Assembly, where it became a national debt, but as a private business between Chavez and Ortega. So with that money, they were trying to, to, to sell the idea that there was going to be a Chinese investment to make an inter-oceanic inter canal. So uh, there was a lot of money, a lot of business, and that's one of the things that 
this second time, Ortega did different, different from the communist government and regime that they had in the 80s. This time he learned not, not to go against uh, the, the, the capital or, or the entrepreneurial, the business sector, nor the church. In fact, he, he found allies. And as I said, since they are drug trafficking uh, part of the organized crime, those allies became kidnapped. They, they became part of, of that organized crime, which, as you know, once uh, those people go into that, they, they, they cannot get out. So, yeah. unfortunately, yes. I mean, you know, so, I, I, yeah. I, I, I got to interrupt you and, and I apologize, but this is such, you're putting so much on the table. This is amazing. And I just want to go back and unpack a few things because you said a few things there that are worth uh, going a little deeper into. You mentioned, number one, about Chavez, the Chinese, and the canal. We've been hearing about that so-called canal for, for a long time. And it's been a real irritant because they have, you know, the Chinese and, and the Russians um, and the Sandinista regime with the help of the Cuban regime, they've caused a lot of problems in rural parts of Nicaragua with, with, uh, with folks who are in this uh, farming areas and um, rich uh, lands that, you know, people are proud of the lands they own. They don't want to be displaced by a bunch of foreign investors who are trying to do it by force. We've talked to people in Nicaragua uh, during that period that you talked about that made clear that they would go in there, the government would, and sometimes they would try and forcibly remove them. What, you know, during the Cold War, you know that was a very hotly contested area in Nicaragua. What did Sandinistas think that they were going to go in there with the Chinese and convince, you know, try and displace these people by force and they were not going to rebel? Well, uh, they, I, I don't know how that they found a, a Chinese uh, fellow uh, who claimed you know, they both claimed to, to be millionaires or billionaires uh, and that they were able to do this investment. And obviously, since uh, Ortega had control of the National Assembly, he, he didn't even do an environmental study uh, on the impact of what an interoceanic uh, canal would mean to the country. Uh, uh, so just, just to give you an idea of, of, I mean, there was no bidding process as we could all imagine, uh, and they just passed a, a law, uh, I think within a week, and I remember protesting in front of the Congress as well uh, against that law. And like you said, I mean, he gave all rights to, to that Chinese uh, uh, fellow, which obviously w w was just a, a puppet, no? Un titere. Do you think that whole, do you think that was a scheme back then to try and inject the Belt Road Initiative, like some some pre-planning that Chavez and because back then, you know, you had the Bolivarian access with the Americas and Hugo Chavez was pumping out all this oil money to rebuild this alliance to undermine American security, American business interests. And they were purposely inviting people like the Chinese, the Iranians and other people to go into these places, especially Nicaragua and others in Central America to, you know, doblegar, to turn to turn folks around. And do you think it was part of that Belt Road Initiative strategy for China? And why didn't the private sector, the people, you know, the businessmen and women who saw this, you know, in America, when you see a Chinese company coming in to invest on strategic land, you say something. Now, of course, we, did, we don't always do that. And we paid a high price for not doing that. But we have laws in place to deal with strategic investments. Why didn't people in Nicaragua, a country of just about 6 million people, where we kind of know who are the bigger business owners, the banks, uh, say something? Why did they just go along with this? Did they think China would be a better trade partner than America? Why not invite an American company to come in? I, I think the mid-canal idea is a crazy idea, but why didn't anyone there after America sacrificed so much? We fought together with the Contras and the, and the freedom fighters in Nicaragua for so long why didn't the, 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 the elites, if you will, you know, uh, some people call them oligarchs. Maybe there are some oligarchs. I don't know. But why didn't the business elites come out and say to Uncle Sam, hey, we need your help down here because there are things happening that are, do not seem right to us. What happened there? Well, well again, uh, like, like I said, remember uh, the, the U.S. was having an economic crisis with, with the real estate 
crash. Uh, and and at that moment, with the oil price, I mean, now it's very clear that it was all part of a money laundering scheme. Uh, and with that oil price, I mean, they, they were making calculations uh, where they probably thought that that was going to continue and that they were going to have all the money in the world. Uh, and the private sector, specifically some of the banks, some of, some of the owners, uh, just like uh, the movie of The Godfather, they had an offer they couldn't refuse. <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was, it was either you become part of it, you know, and you make a lot of money. Or we start, you know, uh, uh, throwing uh, rumors out that, that the bank is not in a good situation and we'll just break you. So, you know, you know, Roberto, this, this, this is like this is um, again, there's so much we could unpack here. But uh, I want to fast forward to something because this list basically, though, leads me to this. This now helps explain a little better why in April 2018, when they tried to because basically the Sandinistas have bankrupted the country. I mean, they, they pretty much have uh, emptied the state treasury. And when they tried to impose that 75 cent payroll tax and they, uh, on the pensioners, and they, would, they tried to reduce pensions and impose a tax, there was an almost instantaneous revolt. It, it, it was almost as if for all these years when the Sandinistas retook control of the government, they, they, they pretty much raped the treasury, stole from the government, invited the Chinese, invited the Russians, uh, brought in um, uh, bad actors like Iran. Uh, they pillaged the nation in this crazy scheme in, to help Chavez and Castro. Then they come and they, it's like they wanted to light fire. Did they, they, they know? How could they not know that by trying to take pensioners' money and increase a tax was not going to... Because it was almost instantaneous what happened in April 2018. The people revolted. Yes, and you clearly uh, remember that in 2016, when when the NICA Act was passed, we had a lot of uh, uh, obstacles, and even the private sector lobbying, you know, paying uh, groups here in the U.S. to lobby against the NICA Act. Uh, and and to be very honest, uh, there was no human imagination, uh, ju just probably uh, the, the vision of some Congress people like Ileana Rosletinen, wh where we thought that there was going to, we didn't see the light in the tunnel. Uh, the, 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 this was uh, definitely uh, uh, a spiritual revival. This was the hand of God uh, helping and waking up, uh, awakening the people in Nicaragua. And like you said, uh, obviously, first, they were not able to, 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 to contain a huge fire of a national natural uh, reserve, El Indio Maiz, uh, La Reserva Indio Maiz in Nicaragua. And that upset a lot of people. And immediately, they tried to reform the Social Security uh, system. But that, you know, is it, not as bad when, when you have a transparent and good accountability but when, when the security system has been appointed, has been uh, accused, you know, of a lot of uh, mishandling uh, and corruption, and you could see that a lot of the people on the payroll ju ju just for, for political favors, uh, that, that really was the, the, the drop that overflew the glass, you know, and that... Yeah, yeah, it was it was intense. And let me tell you, I mean, it's hard to capture the the, the energy uh, that almost I mean, it was like from the moment they tried to change that reform, then Ortega canceled media rights. Then he went in and he went he went in for the kill. And the interesting thing is that I think he was going to stage a, a super coup back then. And uh, the NICA Act, which we'll talk about when we come back from this next break, was a sanctions bill that would target officials within the regime for corruption. And there, it was not just regime officials, but anyone who helped them, including private sector players. And they waged a dirty campaign in Washington. They hired a bunch of lobbyists uh, here in Washington to try and, and block it. And, and they almost succeeded. But let me tell you, Congresswoman Ross Leighton, eventually, with, with the help of many other champions like Ted Cruz from over there in Texas and Marco Rubio down in Florida and uh, Menendez, it was a bipartisan coalition that was able to eventually 
prevail that we're not going to put up with the, the funny business and this corruption and it's a, it's a sanctions list that targets people for engaging in some of the behavior that all those of us out here could see plain as day was happening but nobody over there was doing anything about that and look we don't want to tell the Nicaraguan people what to do quite the opposite the NICA act is a tool it's a tool to help them we're not going to give access to the U.S. market to corrupt people and uh, that's what this law does it's a great law and we're going to talk some more about that on the way back. And then we're also going to get into what happened in 2018 and what is happening now, because there's a lot happening now. So we'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Roberto, there's a lot we've covered and so much we're going to cover. In fact, we're going to bring you back and we're going to bring you back with uh, some of your colleagues. We can talk a little bit more about this initial episode to give our listeners just a big picture grounding about what's happened. And we're going to put some items on the website there so people can read up on some of this. We had the breakdown in 2018. Like we said earlier in the program, a lot of people died, including American citizens. Two, at least two American citizens died. Many were tortured in prison. Um, the struggle continues, though. This is not over. Uh, be, you know, there was that big lockdown it's pretty remarkable too here where you have these folks who were out there without any political experience, young people, and they pretty much brought the country to an entire standstill. They, the, it was like, and this is not a hyperbole. This is like, they literally weren't allowing trucks at one point uh, to come in into the country. And they could have locked down, frankly, a lot of Central America with this activity. If that continued, uh, the regime felt the pressure and today even though things may seem like they they're getting back to normal, they're not back to normal. There's a lot of suffering happening there, and you're working with an organization um, in the United States based in Miami called Justice and Democracy, and they they you've all launched a project initiative for change, and it's a nice broad coalition of people who say elections with the Ortega Murillo regime are not a viable way forward. And I always call them a regime, as you know, because if you call them a government, you're saying they have legitimacy. And I don't believe they have legitimacy. I believe it's a regime. It's an illegitimate government, not based on the rule of law. What message, though, do you have uh, for folks who say elections are the only way forward? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we, we're not saying we, we don't want violence. But is there another way forward that does not include Ortega and Murillo and that does not put us in this predicament that we're in now with Venezuela, where the Venezuelan people have been in this ongoing campaign with almost no end in sight, frankly. But what's your message on that? And we'll talk at the end of this about two important documents, uh, one that involves listing the Sandinista Party as a terrorist organization. So before we get to that, what is this debate that we're having now about elections in Nicaragua? Are elections possible? with Ortega Murillo on the ticket. Well, th thank you, Jason. And, and I do want to end the idea that we left off in, in the last part, where we were starting to talk about the protest uh, on, the, on the reform that they had on the social security system. Uh, obviously, it was a peaceful protest, and it was mainly college students. It was students from the public universities that were protesting uh, in, the, in the name, in the representation of, of their grandparents, that they were taking the pensions away from their grandparents. And, and they were severely uh, beaten, uh, uh, not, not, not just the students, but it, some of the elders that were also protesting and even some of the press. So uh, see, they were not only beaten, they were some that were shot and killed. Yeah, and some of these people were also the, like, ironic that they were kids of, of Sandinistas, some of them. These were, like, supposed to be the next generation of, of Sandinistas, and they've almost uh, metamorphosized into something completely different because of what they saw the government was doing. And that, that was April 2018, so two years ago. And, and after they killed this, like you said, the, the peasants that had been protesting against this interoceanic canal, which was all a scheme for money laundering, but also to confiscate their properties, uh, they came to the city of Managua to also support the students. Uh, so there were two months, all of April, uh, even all May, uh, May the 30th is Mother's Day, 
So I, I remember that day was La Madre de las Marchas, the, the mother of all marches, which was great. Which, which <laughs> was more than half a million people on the streets. But during that day, they had snipers with military weapons uh, killing those peaceful protesters. The day, Mother's Day. And also, uh, obviously, you know, the OAS, uh, El Grupo uh, Internacional de Expertos Independientes, which is the inter independent group of international experts, uh, they came and did a study over those two months, and they found that definitely genocide was committed. So in, in order to stop that, the, the Catholic Church very wisely uh, called for a dialogue. Uh, however, the, the students also rightly uh, called, you know, this was not going to be a negotiating table. The, 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 this was going to be uh, a surrendering table. Una mesa de rendición. You know, where, right. where were they going to discuss how the, 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 the then president, you know, what was going to surrender and, and leave the office. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, some friends told, you know, you cannot negotiate with, with a dictator, much less a genocide. Uh, and that's how, where we are at the moment. Two years later, uh, there was no negotiation. Uh, obviously, there was no political will from, from the dictator. Uh, and, and yeah, the OAS and some of the advisors were calling for elecciones anticipadas, you know, advanced elections which obviously hasn't happened and are not going to happen. And now uh, some of those political leaders, which they are kidnapped by the system, are, are taking uh, electoral reform to the OAS. Uh, and they're still uh, thinking that, that the regime, the genocidal drug trafficking regime, is going to uh, have electoral reforms and be able to provide security for the, for, for the citizens to go into an electoral process. So, I mean, the, the majority of the people still have the spirit of 2018, of two years ago, where, where, where they were saying, we, we, we just want the dictator out. Uh, and, and he was proven now to be, to be a criminal. Uh, and now there, there is enough evidence that he is also part of, of this uh, cartel De los Soles, of that drug cartel, uh, which uh, William Barr uh, accused uh, Nicolás Maduro, uh, and, and in the accusation, he specifically uh, uh, cited that both Nicolás Maduro and Diosdado Cabello, uh, in charge of the National Assembly, uh, the, I think Cabello Rondón, Cabello, uh, ordered the FARC the irregular army from Colombia, uh, to deliver uh, cocaine to a particular place in Venezuela where a jet would be waiting to transport the, the cocaine to Nicaragua for further shipment to Mexico and import into the United States. And that was in Yeah, I mean, these, these, these guys, I mean, yeah, these, these guys, um, and... They, they are, Roberto, let me tell you, they have been, since they've been in power, a narco-terrorist state. Um, it, we never talk as much about Nicaragua as we should. I think that's a big mistake. Uh, you know, I've been very vocal about uh, if we have pursued Nicaragua first at the beginning of the administration, I'm, I believe the Nicaraguan people, especially with what they did in 2018, in one march, in one march, if, if we had had their back 100%, that place would be completely different. We wouldn't be having this discussion today. We'd be having a totally different conversation because it, was, it is and remains a soft underbelly that was used by the Russia client state of Cuba, by the, the, the other narco state, in my opinion, terrorist state of Venezuela, to launder their illicit gains, to traffic in drugs. They are key to the drug trade in Central America. And, I, and it's pretty remarkable what your group is doing because you're asking for peaceful change. You're asking for peaceful change consistent with the Nicaraguan constitution, consistent with the right of the people to redress their grievances against this dictatorial state, which is getting support from people like Iran, Russia, China. And you're saying, we want our country back. 
it, it sounds a lot like to what the, you know what what a lot of Trump supporters are saying uh, have said before uh, about they just want their government back. This is not being about Republican or Democrat. Our government works for us. We don't work for you. It's almost as if you all took this to the streets and really were came so close to 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 putting some change in place. And now what you're asking the U.S. Attorney General to do is say, please don't stop with Venezuela. Look right here. Look at what hap- what's happening in Nicaragua. And you're also saying enforce the NICA Act. So keep sanctioning people. And there's been a few, you know, Trump administration has sanctioned several people under the NICA Act. And there's some more that I think it's going to keep happening. But you're also saying something pretty, pretty dramatic. You're saying list the Fran- Sandinista Party under U.S. law as a terrorist organization. There is a law in the United States called the FTO law that would designate them as a terrorist group. Why do you want them to do that? And why do you think that's going to help? Do you think that will help mobilize more support in Nicaragua for a peaceful transition? Well, well yeah, just to get and to be able to answer, I, I want to go back to the words that Ronald Reagan said when he would speak about the U.S. and the Constitution. It says the difference between the U.S. Constitution and the rest of the world is three words. We, the people. You know, people forget that. They, they, they think the Constitution is to give powers to the president. And it's obviously we, the people, the, 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 peop- the, the sovereign, the one that has the power is the people. And so that, that's what we're trying to convey to the international community uh, that, that our problem is an international organized crime problem. So we need the support of our international allies. Yeah, and Roberto, I think it's important for our listeners to know this is that the Nicaraguan people are very spiritual people, are very, uh, they're believing people, they're God-fearing Christians. And... Uh, there's Catholics, Evangelicals, Baptists, uh, it's a, and, and they believe, in fact, in my experience across the spectrum, even when you talk to uh, folks who consider themselves nominally socialist, even, which they're believers, they believe in God, they believe in God-given rights, your rights come from God, and the governments are there to make sure that your rights are not trampled on. That's, you know, that, that's what y'all fought a, a big war for. That, that's why you guys were on the battlefield I mean, if the Cold War got hot, it got hot in, in Nicaragua. And the fields of Nicaragua are consecrated with the blood of patriots. And that meant something. And you listen to the, 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 the new generation of folks, no matter what side they're on, they don't want to go back to that ever again. They, don't, they, want, to, they want what they were promised, what they fought for. And it, it, it's, it's fair to say that the peace agreements, as far as I'm concerned, the Nicaraguans... From the moment that ink dried, uh, the Sandinistas have pretty much tried to uh, ignore it. And as you said earlier on in this program, uh, they got smart because Fidel and Chavez basically said, listen, if you're going to do a power grab, you need to be more methodical about it. Because if you do it the way we did it last time, you're going to bring a lot of problems on you. So they just did a slow boil. But the Nicaraguan people, they're God-fearing people, they're wonderful people, they love America. Something that struck me about these protests, before we get into your letters, was that in April 2018, I saw a lot of Nicaraguan flags, but Roberto, I saw a lot of American flags. I saw Reagan quotes. I saw people walking around with bandanas uh, of the American flag. Why is that? Why is there so much love down there for Reagan, for America? Um, I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but what do you think? Even with yeah, the young people. And, and, and unfortunately, I mean, uh, th- th- this has to be said, but yeah, th- th- sometimes the general opinion is, is that Nicaragua or Latin America hates the U.S. And that's part of the leftist media, Jason. I mean, yes, they, exactly. They control the, the media for political advantages and interests because they, 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 they want to portray the, the U.S. as the imperialist. And, and in your question, when you tell me why they love the U.S., it's because we know the U.S. Pledge Allegiance. That's one of the things that most inspired me. Uh, liberty and justice for all. I mean, we are Americans. We are citizens of the American continent. I mean, 
I mean, myself, obviously, being a dual citizen, a Nicaraguan and an American citizen, but that's the dream of, of most of the majority in, in Nicaragua, that, that, that where they, they dream of, of, you know, of, of have respect of the rule of law, of, of uh, a system uh, that, re that, that respects uh, their human rights, uh, of having been able to have uh, health, education, and, and obviously we have that brother, that big neighbor, the most powerful nation uh, in the world is the U.S. So it's a natural instinct, you know, that, that we want to, to be able to ally uh, with, with our big brothers. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, you remind me of a conversation I had with one of the students and, uh, during that uprising. And I was struck by how much of American history they knew. I had this kid telling me about the Virginia Declaration of Rights and George Mason and, and, and the Constitution and Thomas Jefferson. I mean, they study it. They knew about it. And it, it's quite, um, it, it's important because this is how we kind of hit home, why it's important to focus on what happens in the region. You know, we talk a lot about illegal immigration. We've talked a lot about drug smuggling here in the past few years. Um, if we help our colleagues in the region, and help them retake control of their governments the way they tell us they think they can do it. And we have patriots and freedom defenders in government and in the private sector working together. That's how we solve the problems of illegal immigration. That's how we solve the problem of the illegal drug trade. That's how we throw out of the Western hemisphere, the China flu regime of China and the Russians. You know, we have people in power that support American values the region becomes more stable. We work together. Things can get done. Problem's been in places like Nicaragua, for some reason, these corrupt, crooked officials that are part of the Ortega Murillo regime have, have stayed in power. And we need, we need to find the people who want to change that. And when they ask for the help, we want to help them out because they truly, uh, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a symbi almost a symbiotic relationship. They just want to be free. They want to be able to take care of their families, their people, their private rights uh, respected, their homes respected. And I think we have a lot in common because these dreams are universal and uh, these values are universal because, as we said before, they're God-given rights. Roberto, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, we're going to pick up where we were going to start before and just focus some more on these letters that you all are talking about, talk about the initiative and share with uh, listeners what they can do to help. And uh, we'll take it. Maybe even a little longer. We may extend today's program a few more minutes just so we can get a few more things in. So stick Thank with us. We'll much. be right back. And we're back. So, Roberto, if you're listening to this anywhere in the United States and you know nothing about Nicaragua, uh, what can Americans do? to help the people of Nicaragua. I know you're working on this initiative. You're, I know this is going to be of great interest to members of Congress. In fact, I know members of Congress are following this very closely. But why should Americans, before you tell us about the campaign, what's your message to anybody here in the States who's asking, well, you know, why should I, you know, I, I understand why you guys uh, tell and, and it's important to know what's happening so close to home, but what can I do about it? And why should I focus well, on it? Uh, thank you, Jason, because... Uh, in the in the last part of the program, uh, I was uh, just thinking one of my colleagues uh, always uh, say uh, when he addresses to, to the U.S. Uh, representatives and the U.S. friends, we are fighting your battle. And, and obviously it's not a point or a situation or whose battle it is because we're in a globalized world and obviously it's a battle against evil. Uh, but when, when he says that we're uh, uh, fighting uh, the U.S. battle, it's because these countries, these narco regimes, uh, part of the socialists of the 21st century, uh, their objective, their goal is, is to fight the U.S. And they, That's right. they said so, that they were going to use the money of the drugs to help them. Obviously, they use the money from the petrol as well, from the oil. 
but but their their goal is to fight the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and that's what the Russians do, the Chinese do, and and even our commercial competitors. Uh, I would love to see more American companies invest in Nicaragua because I believe prosperity, business, private property rights, working together with our friends in the region, we can rebuild and have a better Nicaragua in the future. No doubt yeah, about that. And, and this brings me back uh, to what you were saying. Yeah, Nicaragua's people, you know, they, they believe in the Virgin Mary. The majority are Catholic, even though, you know, that there is also a big percentage and a very important percentage of evangelicals or Baptists, but, but we're Christians, just, just like the U.S. is. And, and having said that, we, again, I told you that April 2018 was an awakening. Unfortunately, after a year of negotiating with the regime, uh, people were losing that spirit, that spirituality. But now with COVID-19, people are praying again. People are on their knees. And this is something that, again, God is giving us uh, to wake up, you know, and remember uh, the, the, the world order is changing now. All the industries, the factories that were in China, they are going to come back to the American continent. And we need to have stability in the region to make America great again. <laughs> that's right. And make Nicaragua great again. That's, well, when, that's when, definitely, when, um, when, that's, you guys are well on the way exactly, to doing that. I know I mean, that. When we say America, you know, obviously we think of the U.S., but the whole continent. It, yeah, the universe, right? The Americas. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. The Western Hemisphere exactly. is the Americas. So, and uh, we are um, blessed as the Peace Hemisphere, even though there are many challenges here. Um, I believe that we are stabilizing influence in, in our region. And I believe it's because of our values and our constitution and, and our tradition. That's universal. And it can be adapted to what the circumstances require. And in Nicaragua, I, I'm confident, more so, frankly, than in other places in the region that will go unnamed, uh, that I feel very bullish that the Nicaraguan people are going to uh, prevail. And there's a few challenges ahead, but the U.S. will have their back. And that's kind of how we're going to close this. I think that a lot of people talk about sanctions and, and some big fix-all, but we all know that that's not what that is. And President Trump announced a reorientation of U.S. policy in the hemisphere back in 2017. Uh, he, he said, we're going to extend our hand of friendship and, and to our foes. We're going to make clear that uh, you're not going to be uh, playing the United States uh, at least the way they used to. And sanctions are one of the many tools we use to keep uh, our policy in check. So we know what the goal is. It's a free Nicaragua, Nicaragua with free and fair elections. But these tools, for example, like sanctions, why are they so important? Why should we have more Nicaraguan official sanction? Why is it important to put the Sandinista party on the terrorist list? Well, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. You know, what can the U.S. do uh, for us, and, and I want to start saying that besides being a God-fearing nation like the U.S. in Nicaragua, we're and the people in Nicaragua is also a a God-trusting nation. So uh, we realize that there is just so much that we can do, and so much that we can think, and so much that we can dream, but the Lord will give us the other part that sometimes we're not considering. And that's why sometimes I get really mad at my friends that were thinking, well, there's just the things that you wish you could do and the things that you can do. It's like, be realistic. You know, we, we've never had prosperity. We've never had democracy. So that doesn't mean we, we can dream the, the, to change things and, and, and be prosperous. Uh, especially, you know, Roberto. You know, if if, if the founding fathers exactly. had thought that way, uh, we'd still be living under the boot of King George and the British Empire. So I I uh, I think you have to dream. You have to think about uh, like you do, exactly. like your group does, 
like your wonderful wife and, and former member of Congress down there does, I think you, 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 you have to think, you got to dream you, you, and you got to help steer those ideas. And, and, and I believe America can help support the journey of, 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 of the Nicaraguan people. So, yeah, thank you. And, and exactly, that's why we're asking two specific things uh, to, to the U.S. government at this moment. One, as initiative for change, Justice and Democracy, which is a nonprofit registered in Florida, we're, we're sending a letter and we're writing to William Barr, the U.S. Attorney General, and we're asking him, uh, formally requesting that he includes in his investigation the Nicaraguan genocidal dictator Daniel Ortega, because he's a political partner of Nicolas Maduro and the FARC. First, first, because the shipment of cocaine from Venezuela to Nicaragua indicated in the indictment that could not have been carried out with the assistance of Ortega. And second, because there is sufficient public and well-known evidence that Ortega has been involved in illicit drug trafficking business for years. So we... Yeah, in fact, in your letter that I have here, by the way, I'm taking a look at it now. It talks about the... the um... It's a great letter, and you talk about how Evo Morales, Maduro, the FARC in Colombia, Correa, who used to be in Ecuador, the you know the, the former Forum of Sao Paulo that we talked about earlier, um, all that's connected. It's all part of that same spider web of corruption that's all over the Western Hemisphere, including a very important entity called the Alba Petroleos de Nicaragua, Albanisa, and some other companies. Why is that particular entity so important? And explain to our listeners how it ties into the Nicaraguan banking system, because I believe Managua was being used to launder a lot of dirty money, not just move airplanes and drugs and trafficking in person, which we haven't talked much about, but it happens to Nicaragua, as sex trafficking of children, which is very, very sad because of the Maduro, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the Ortega regime. And Daniel Ortega, by the way, has some interesting problems with you know, child uh, trafficking and children himself. But why is this entity Albanisa uh, come up so much? Well, uh, we have to remember that Venezuela had a a program called Petro Caribe, which was uh, supposed, you know, to, to support the poor countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, and they were uh, selling petrol uh, on... on uh, with some benefits, you know, on, on some beneficial uh, conditions, uh, where 25% uh, became a 20-year debt. Uh, so in, in the case of Nicaragua, that didn't go through the National Assembly because uh, at the moment uh, when it came, uh, the Sandinista didn't have control of the Assembly. But in turn, they decided to make it a private uh, business between Ortega and, and Chavez. So Alba, Albaniza, or uh, the way it's called in Nicaragua, it, it's, you know, a private between them two. And that represented that 25% that they didn't have to pay immediately back to Venezuela represented $500 million over an eight-year period. So a total of $4 billion who Ortega could use arbitrarily, uh, and he started buying media businesses, uh, any, everything you could buy, I mean, you could think of. And obviously that was deposited first in two of the banks of Nicaragua. So that, that's why. So basically, Roberto, so basically you're telling us that a lot of this money that came from dirty Venezuela oil money from Hugo Chavez's money laundering machine um, was diverted. It's part of the reason why they're having all these problems today in, in Venezuela is because the state-owned oil company has just uh, was spending all this time when oil prices were high trying to spread the socialist revolution around the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, what, what they couldn't do with the weapons they're trying to do with the laws and, and companies. But we all know that's a, a very crooked it's a crooked system. It's a flawed ideology. And, and pretty much it's based on corruption because you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. So everybody else goes hungry during that process. So that that private illicit network is one of the reasons why you believe they should be targeted. The Sandinistas should be blacklisted because we all know that the Iranians are also involved in that 
in that process too. So it's a state-sponsored terrorism, even maybe some Hezbollah money that we know finds its way throughout the Western Hemisphere uh, could also be part of that private little banking company they set up to launder money well, for charity. Exactly. And, and at the end of the letter that we addressed to William Barr, the Attorney General, we say, you know, that it, that is a sophisticated drug trafficking operation which has abundant political support, which allows access with impunity to ports, airports, state agencies, and other instruments necessary to facilitate its illicit business, which affects security and stability of the Americas. Exactly. Of the Americas, that's right. No, it's, it's, it's funny you said security. We'll have to wrap it up on this last comment, but what do you think about the Nicaraguan <laughs> army and the, and, and the national police? I mean, are there people in there who you think um, are patriots? I know right now, if you try and be too aggressive, you, they'll probably throw you in jail, but are there any people in there who just who you think they're getting tired of this uh, or, or do you think those institutions have been taken over by uh, corrupt forces? Well, uh, personally, you know, I think that we, we should not have an army and, and that the whole army should be turning to uh, firemen uh, and first respondents, which we don't have in Nicaragua. Uh, and obviously under the control and autonomy of the municipality uh, and not the army, which is centralized. So municipalities for our listeners, those are like states the in Nicaragua, right? Municipalities would be more like the cities, city level. Exactly. The cities, sorry. Yes, more the cities, like right. The city right. Level. We're here. We have that autonomy. Uh, but uh, going back to the army specifically, yesterday, uh, an expert, an ex-retired army, what we're saying, you know, that, that right, now, right now the upper upper command, uh, the generals, were very young during the revolution. So, yeah, that level uh, still are ideology uh, uh, inclined. Uh, however, the middle and lower uh, quarters of, of, of the army uh, were more professionalized because the, during the 90s, specifically uh, with, with uh, Aleman and, and more with Bolaños, there was a lot of cooperation from France, uh, from the U.S., in order to professionalize the army. So, yes, uh, there, there is hope, you know, that with this sanction specifically, uh, there are some uh, of the leadership that will listen uh, but at the same time, that's a reason we're asking, you know, the international community to declare and to register the FSLN, the party, as a terrorist organization, and its members be declared outlawed. You know, they, they, the international right. community cannot ask the Nicaraguans to negotiate, dialogue, or much less go to elections with that kind of organization. Yeah, especially people who have blood on their, literally have blood on their hands and have committed, I've, you know, we both know a lot of great lawyers and human rights activists who have documented, frankly, what amount to genocidal crimes, potentially politicide, at least, uh, where they've gone after people because they oppose the system. And we're going to have more on that in a future show. Briefly, though, on, on the issue about the army and the police. So basically, you look at maybe a new organization that can be used for drug interdiction, and that sort of thing, and and maybe uh, the national security of you know border security as well. I know Nicaragua doesn't have one of those. Also, you've you've also told me before, and we're not going to have too much time today, but just introduce the topic that in Nicaragua the what are known as states or the departamentos uh, don't have as much power as the states do here. So the governors or in, in that uh, here in, in the United States have a great deal of power, but over in Nicaragua. It's very centralized in Managua. And do you think down the road, once the country is democratic again, do you think devolution of power to the departamentos is a good idea? Or do you think you have to wait to see the to a transition to start making those type of decisions? Well, de definitely, yes. And that's the thing that really upsets me. And sometimes it makes me feel like I want to cry because during the Bolaños government, uh, which was from 2001 to 2006, uh, they, they, they were able, or we were able, because I was vice minister of agriculture, uh, 
to obtain what it's called uh, budget support. And, and, and that's a way to obtain uh, cooperation from, from the international community where it's not given for specific reasons, but it's just given to the budget. And, 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 and because of the transparency and accountability that was able to obtain. But at the same time, during that period, that, that government was working under the law called Participación Ciudadana, La Ley de Participación Ciudadana, which is Citizen Participation Law, which gives, you know, it's a decentralization law, which gives the, you know, empowers the municipality. So it created a Consejo de Desarrollo Municipal, which are Council of Municipal uh, Development, and then Council of Departmental Development. So that the policies don't go, don't come centralized from Managua, the capital, but in turn the policies and the proposals come from the municipalities. Obviously, that law That's is not being complied by this centralized authoritative regime, and that's one of the laws that has been thrown in in, in the wastebasket. Well, I think I think that's you know this is a great place to stop. I wish we could keep going, but once you once Nicaraguans retake their government devolution of power, divided government, it could work. It works here. It works all over the world. And I, I, I'm, I'm excited for uh, the future for the Nicaraguan people because there's a lot of great young uh, uh, folks coming up the ranks with the gray hairs and a lot of folks who I think are ready and willing to do some of the stuff that you've talked about, that your team is talking about. Roberto, you're always welcome on our show, always welcome to bring your colleagues on the show. I hope we can have you on again soon. And uh, we look forward to Thank you so much, you back. Jason. And thank you, thank especially your audience, which I know is a great audience, a God-fearing, God-trusting audience. So God bless you. God Bye-bye. bless you.